This morning I want to share with you a message called the delay diagnostic. And that's why I delayed the message, just to get your attention. (laughs) Didn't plan that. Uh, You'll see at the end why this is called the delay diagnostic. But I will say that this is is a difficult morning. This is a rough morning. And um, it's a difficult message. So let's pray and ask the Lord to touch us. Uh, we, We need him in every season and in every time. But as a nation, as a world, as an individual, we've never needed him more. Amen. So we're going to dig into his words. I'd ask you to pray with me. Dear Lord, I come before you. I thank you for who you are. Thank you that you've given us this word. Lord, may we pay attention. May we listen to what you have said. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch me and every soul in this place that we would take most seriously what the living word of God is saying. And I thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to share with you um, a parable that is found in both the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. And this parable is called the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servants or the parable of the faithful and wicked servants found in two Gospels, and the first thing that I'd like to do before we actually go to that parable is get proper context. You know that it's very important when you're reading the Bible to read it in context. And so when we look at either Matthew chapter 24 or Luke chapter 12, where it is found, we see certain phrases being repeated. In the book of Matthew, where we see this parable we're going to address, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. He uses this phrase. He says, in Noah's day, the people were completely unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So Jesus, in context here, is trying to get people to understand that when he comes back, people will be unaware. And the people who are unaware are people who get what? Swept away. The people who didn't recognize that the flood was coming are people who were destroyed. When the parable we're going to address appears in the book of Luke, Jesus speaks to, uh, talks about a rich man. And he says that this rich man just keep getting more and more wealth. And he just wanted to store up more for himself instead of investing in God's kingdom. And Jesus said of that rich man, you're a fool. Tonight, you're going to die. Tonight, I'm going to take your soul. And what's going to happen to everything you've accumulated? So in other words, Jesus was trying to get people to focus on what really matters and not on the seen world, but the unseen world. He also said in Luke, blessed are the ones, the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. You're going to hear this phrase a lot. As a matter of fact, in both these gospels, right around the parable we're going to address, Jesus uses phrases like this, stay awake, be ready, watch. He says in the book of Luke, stay dressed for action. Back in the first century, the people back then wore long flowing garments. And in order to be ready to run or to do any work quickly, they would have to take those garments, kind of roll them up, tuck them into their belt and be ready to go. And Jesus says as Christians, that's what you should be. He says, keep your lamps burning. Don't let your batteries go out. I mean, keep your lights on. Stay awake. So in both these chapters, Jesus himself could not be any more clear 
as, the, as to what the attitude of a true Christian should be in regards to his return. In both of these chapters, he also gives the parable of the thief in the night. How many of you have ever heard the parable of the thief in the night? There have been books written on it, movies about this. I mean, the thief in the night, okay? But this is God's word. And so when we read it, we have to remember this parable is as true as John 3.16. Jesus said it. He used it in both of these gospels. And here's what he said in Matthew. He said to Christians, he said to his disciples, therefore stay awake because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Jesus says, therefore, you must also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, he's speaking to his disciples here. And he tells us clearly that his coming will be like a thief in the night. Now, I was reading this the other day, and I thought to myself, okay, what that means is, if Jesus is coming as like a thief in the night, then Jesus is clearly telling us that most people will be doing what when he comes back? Sleeping. But we're going to find out that the Bible says that people who are sleeping are people who get judged and taken away. So this affirms what Jesus said in other parts, where he tells us, narrow is the way that leads to life. Amen? Most people will be asleep. So Jesus is desperate. He's urging his disciples, would you guys, would you please stay awake? If you knew that a thief was coming, you wouldn't fall asleep. If somebody told you a thief's going to break in your house at 2.15 a.m., would you be just getting yourself some sound disease, right, at 2.15? I'd be up all night long, right? And that's what Jesus says we are to do. This is the context of the parable that we're going to address. Now, also in Matthew 24, when we look at the rendition of this parable in Matthew 24, which is what we're going to do, the context of that whole chapter, as probably a lot of you know, is the second coming of the Lord. And the chapter opens up with Jesus making a curious statement to his disciples. Now, in other Gospels, it actually says that the disciples, they were just so enamored of Herod's temple. I mean, they were looking at the temple back then in the first century, and they were like, Jesus, look at these beautiful stones. Look at these magnificent buildings in Herod's temple. Just look at this. And Matthew records for us that Jesus left the temple, was going away, when his disciples came to point these things out to him about the buildings of the temple. But he answered them. What is this Jesus, okay? He didn't sit around and say, oh, yeah, you're right, guys. This is just gorgeous. This is amazing. He answered them and he said, you see all these things, all these stones, all these structures, do you not? He said, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that won't be completely thrown down. Do you get the feeling that Jesus is always trying to redirect his disciples from looking at what can be seen and relied upon to what can't be seen and truly relied upon? So you get the feeling that's going to be our problem. I know that's my problem. Now, this is an interesting portion of Scripture because Jesus is using here what's called the law of double reference. Frequently in the Bible, when prophets or Jesus would make a prophetic statement, they would be talking about something that was about to happen in the immediate future. 
But, like, that would be the first mountain in front of them. But then there'd be a larger mountain behind that somewhere down the road that they were also prophesying about. So when Jesus makes this statement, it is true that 40 years after he spoke these words, the Romans under Titus came into Jerusalem and took over Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Everybody knows that in 70 A.D. So in a very literal sense, this took place. But as you read Matthew 24, you see that Jesus is talking about his return. And he's talking about a day when literally, I can't wait for this day, Jesus is going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And at that time, he will destroy the Antichrist who will be set up in the temple of God and claiming himself to be God. And so there's a day coming when Jesus says everything in this world, including the Antichrist and his kingdom and everything he tries to do, everything in this visible world is going to be shaken or destroyed. And the only thing that will be left is the kingdom of God. The invisible kingdom of God and people who are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you need a, uh, some more evidence from that, you could look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through 29, where uh, the writer of Hebrews says that back in Moses' day, remember when Mount Sinai shook when God talked? It says, uh, his voice shook the earth then, but now... He has said, not only will I shake the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Amen? There's a day coming when everything created will be shaken and will be destroyed. Jesus will take down everyone and everything that is against him. And the only thing that will remain are those who are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. So this, again, is the context, the serious nature that Jesus was, in which he was speaking about the parable we're going to address. Now, also, in the very next verse regarding the temple, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's just said this amazing thing to his disciples. He's, he's, he's talking what might appear to be craziness to them, you know. And so the disciples came to him privately. They kind of take him aside. You know, hey, Jesus, uh, can you let us on the inside track? Can you tell us, like, you're talking about the temple being destroyed. Like, what is going to be the sign of your coming? What is going to be the sign of the end of the age? Wouldn't you want to know that? I'd like to know. I'd like to say to Jesus, how do we know when you're going to come back? Now, you guys hopefully know that Jesus and God have always told us that we won't know the day or hour. Amen? We won't know the day or the hour. But Jesus is very clear on what we can know. So when his disciples asked him this question, he proceeds in Matthew 24 to name a number of things that will happen in history from that time until the time in which we live, until the time Jesus returns. And he says these things will be like birth pains. Now, birth pains, even though I've never birthed a child, I'm fully aware that birth pains start out slow and less intense. They grow to be more and more frequent, and they grow to be more and more painful. So while we don't know when Jesus is coming back, Jesus said, there are a number of things you can look for. And when you see them happening more often and more intensely, don't be dumb. Understand this. 
my coming is closer than it ever was. Amen? Here are some of the things that he named then in that chapter. He talked about wars and rumors of wars. He talked about ideological kingdoms coming up against other kingdoms. He talked about false messiahs, false prophecy within the church. He talked about famines. He talked about earthquakes. He talked about the persecution of Christians. Do we see any of these things happening in our world today? Can we look back in history and say they are becoming more intense and more frequent than ever before? Amen? So while we cannot know the exact day or the exact hour, Jesus says you have to watch the signs of the times. And then he made, I just love how down to earth and gritty Jesus is. He looked at his disciples and he said, from the fig tree, just learn a lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things taking place, You know that the Son of Man is near at the very gates. Now, what did Jesus do? He used a simple, earthly analogy. He said, if you're smart enough to look at a tree in the spring and see that the leaves are coming, the buds are there, you know that summer's near. In the same way, don't be misled, people. Don't be caught off guard. When you see all these things happening in the world, know that my coming is soon. Now, in Luke, he gets a little bit more clear with them, and he says this. He says it this way. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be a good Christian. You really don't. You just have to read and believe his word. Amen? You just have to take him at his word. Jesus said, you're smart enough to see a cloud and say, oh, it's going to rain. Then he looks at his disciples, and he said, You are hypocrites. You know enough to do that. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the time in which you're living? And don't you think if Jesus were here, which he is by his spirit, he would say to us, come on, people. You don't know how to interpret the times in which you're living. You can't see what's happening uh, geographically, politically, uh, ideologically. You can't see what's happening. We have to know that his coming is very soon. He calls people who can interpret the weather but cannot interpret what the Bible says about his coming. He calls them hypocrites. Now hold on to that because it's going to come back again. Then the Apostle Paul corroborates everything Jesus is saying in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Only this time he is specifically, not including crowds of people, he's talking directly to Christians because he calls them brothers. Brothers and sisters. He says this, Brothers and sisters, you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. In other words, we know that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, right? We know that most people will be sleeping, But here's what the Bible says. You as a Christian should be awake the whole time. You're not a people of the darkness. You don't go to sleep at night as others do. There is never a time when I should not be vigilant in the cause of Jesus Christ. There is never a moment in my life when I should not be looking for him to return. And how is he going to see me when I come back? That's what this is saying. You're children of the light. You're children of the day. He's coming as a thief in the night. But that's not going to catch you off guard because you're waiting for him. That's the context. 
The context of this parable that I'm about to share with you, which is a really difficult parable, not a fun one, not an easy one, is this. Of all people, we as Christians are to be expectant. As I read the Bible, I see it this way. If you are not expectant for the return of Jesus Christ, I I don't know. I don't know what we are then. And I'm going to let Jesus speak for himself. First of all, Matthew doesn't record this, but Luke does. After Jesus gives the parable of the thief in the night, big mouth Peter opens his mouth again. Peter's always asking questions, always, you know, pushing everybody's buttons. And so Jesus gives this parable, and Peter speaks up what the rest of us would kind of like to say. After Jesus tells us all this, Peter goes, uh, hey, Jesus, you know, is this stuff you're telling us, is it, is it like for everyone? Or is it for us? Like, who's this for? Have you ever been like that with God? You're reading the Bible and you're like, whoa, is this really, is this for me? Is this for everyone? Is this for us? Is it for the disciples? Is it for the Christians? And Jesus doesn't answer Peter with a sentence. He, uh, he answers Peter with a question. He doesn't make a statement. He answers Peter with a question, which is what I would like you to allow the Holy Spirit to do for you this morning. If you're sitting here asking yourself the question, Shelly, does this really apply to us? I mean, are you serious? This is really how we're supposed to be living? Is this really what it's about? I mean, honestly. Well, ask yourself this question. Here's what Jesus did when Peter said, does this apply to us? Does it apply to everyone? Like, who's it for? Jesus answers with a question, and he says this, Who then, Peter, who then is the faithful and wise servant? And this begins the parable that I want to address. I mean, tune in, because this is scary stuff. So Jesus says to Peter, his disciple, Peter, let me ask you a question. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? You want to know if it applies to you? Ask yourself that question. Now, the reason this is scary is as we read the parable, we're going to find out that there are only two types of servants in the parable, okay? There's the faithful and wise servant, and there's the wicked servant. There's no good church-attending, mediocre servant in the middle. Jesus doesn't address that. This This is scary. Here's what he says. He says, you are either a faithful and wise servant or you're a wicked servant. And then he defines those. Now, uh, it doesn't surprise me because you remember in Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus addresses the church of Laodicea, he says to them, you remember, he says, people sitting in church playing the game, here's what he says to you. He says, if I would rather have you be 100% cold towards me, dead towards me, I would rather have you be cold Or I would rather have you be 100% on fire, in love with me, talking about me, doing my work. I would rather have you cold, disassociated, or 100% hot. But the thing I won't tolerate is the middle. He says, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, is what the Greek says. Now, if Jesus is going to vomit out lukewarm or what's in the middle, that makes me think that's a category that really doesn't exist, does it? If we're lukewarm, if we're not faithful and wise, or we're not wicked, and we think we're somewhere in between, bye-bye. That's vomit out of the mouth of Jesus. This is the only two categories there are. 
So that's why our ears need to perk up. And when I read this, my ears perked up and I said, God, convict me, show me, teach me. Let me ask myself this question. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So here is the description of a faithful and wise servant. A person, now of course Jesus is the master in this parable, okay, we are the servants, this is his household. When Jesus ascended up into heaven, he said he would give us the power of his spirit to make disciples of all nations, did he not? Isn't that what he said? We are the ones to be giving the household of God their food at the proper time. He says that is what a faithful and wise servant does. They are giving people food at the proper time. Now, this is the food. This is it. We're not talking about Big Macs and Junior Bacon Cheeseburgers, even though the new Wendy's has opened up. Okay? I, I do have food on my mind. But that's not, yes, amen for me. But, but that's not what I'm talking about. This is the food that Jesus is talking about. And here's what he said. The faithful and wise servant is the servant who is giving out the word of God. Now, you could say, well, then that only applies to preachers and Sunday school teachers and Awana leaders and youth leaders and people who are involved in direct ministry. No, it especially applies to them. But it applies to every single one of us because every one of us was given the Great Commission. Don't just preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. Grow people in Jesus Christ. Give this word to the ones who don't know him and give this word to the ones who do know him. This is the food. Now, I'm going to quote Ray Stedman, just so you know I'm not out there in some crazy waters. The late Ray Stedman, great Bible teacher, said this. He said, It is clearly evident, therefore, that the supreme need of the church during this time of waiting for its Lord is Bible study and knowledge. From this, all else will flow. The Bible is the revelation of things as they really are. Now, it doesn't stop there. I'm not so foolish as to say you need to sit around and have Bible studies all the time, and that makes you ready. Let me tell you this, if you don't study the Bible, there's no way you can be ready. It's not enough, but it's what you have to do. It's the food we need. Ray Stedman said, it's not the book itself, but the Lord which the book reveals that is our food. Bible study alone can be most dull and uninteresting if you don't expect the Spirit of God to take the words from them and cause the living Christ to emerge. You cannot neglect the Bible and grow in Christ. Amen? You can't. Now, on the other hand, you can grow in knowledge of the Bible and never get fed. There are many people who know the Bible, teach the Bible, read the Bible, do family devotions, and they're not growing in Christ. They're not getting fed because it's all up here. But you must take in the Word of God and you must share it with others, the unsaved and the saved. Here's my question. What food are you giving? Okay? Because the faithful and wise servant is feeding people. Let's put it this way. If you have children, what kind of food are you giving your kids? You giving them the food of tons of activities, honor roll, sports, big house, nice stuff, good education, college. What's the food you're giving your kids? Or do your kids know? That you love Jesus. And man, they know you're waiting for him to come back. And you know he's sovereign over the world. What kind of food are you giving your children? As a spouse, what kind of food are you giving to your husband or your wife? As a Christian, as a friend, when people walk away from you, do they feel fed by Jesus? 
What are you talking about all the time? What are you doing? The faithful and wise servant gives people their food at the proper time. Then Jesus said, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. I love that part. That's the convicting part. So you say, well, you mean I actually have to be like giving food, like serving Jesus to people, talking about Jesus to people, waiting for Jesus. I have to actually be doing that when he comes back. Well, I guess if that's what you're all about, you will be doing that when he comes back, right? Jesus said, I want to find you doing that when I return. Now, we don't know when he's going to return, so I guess we always have to be doing it, don't we? I put a picture of the seashells up there because I just went to the beach recently and I hadn't been there in years. And I just love, like, getting down, having your feet partially in the water, and you're trying to grab the best seashells. How many of you ever tried to do this? This is a real challenge, Because you only have like a two to three second window. By the time the foam clears and the water's down and you can actually see the shells you want, you've got like two seconds to bend your body over, grab those shells up, pick them up, and and many times you miss because the next wave comes in and your opportunity's gone. When I read this, that's what I thought of. I thought, Jesus... Make me so much about you. I'm just grabbing souls and shells and reading the Word of God and sharing the Word of God and pressing people into what the Bible says and where we need to be with Him. God, catch me catching shells when you come back. Don't let those shells be gone. Don't let that opportunity be lost. Amen? I want to be bent over grabbing shells when Jesus returns. And that's what He said we need to be doing. Now, this is where it gets really rough. So then Jesus says, there's one other type of servant you might be. If you're not that, here's the other kind you might be. A wicked servant. And when I first read this parable, I can't even tell you what went through my mind. When I first, I've read this, I'm I'm sure in my life before, but I have my Bible open and I said, but that wicked servant, and then I saw the definition of the wicked servant, my heart just dropped. You say, define wickedness, you know, what we could say is the absence of good or all kinds of technical things. But um, here's how Jesus defines wickedness. Ready for this? A person, a churchgoer, who says to himself, eh, yeah, my master's, you know, a little bit delayed. Not quite sure he could come back any minute. He's delayed. That's wicked. That's a wrong place to be. Okay, Jesus says, a wicked servant is a servant who says, "Ah, I've got a lot of stuff to do, a lot going on in my life. I mean, I know he's coming back someday, but really, is this all so blatantly important? Yeah, it is. You can corroborate that with 2 Peter chapter 3, where the Apostle Peter writes, in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Everything just goes on as it always has. And that's what they say. And many times I've said to people into my own heart, we want to say, those terrible, unbelieving scoffers, really? If you really believed that Jesus' coming was not at all delayed, how would yesterday have looked for you a little bit different? Your investment of your time, your money, your relationships, your conversation, how would it have looked different? 
Because the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. I put a quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer up here. It's a quote of his about temptation. And here's what he says about temptation. He says, at the moment of temptation, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. And only desire for the creature becomes real. Satan does not, in the moment of temptation, fill us with hatred of God. He just has to get us to forget God. That's all. You know, if the devil could get every single one of us to wake up every day and think it's about our job or our home or our activities or all that, if he can get us to think it's about so many other things but not about him, then he won the battle. Because the wicked servant says in his heart, my master's coming is delayed. Now, when we talk about that delay, I kind of made this graphic for my own self to picture what was going on. You know, Adam and Eve fell back at the beginning. Jesus, you know, gone through all kind of hard times since then. Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and that leaves off the leftmost point there. We are in that in-between space waiting for him to come back and remake the universe. Who's excited for that? Yeah. The remake. Can't wait. Okay? But in the meantime, we are in the parentheses, aren't we? And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's like, you're living in the parentheses, and you should be waiting for me to come back. Now, my question becomes, why am I in the parentheses? Like, come back now, Jesus. Right? Anybody with me? So the the, the real theological question is, did God ever tell us why the parentheses? Oh, yeah, he did. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. It says, regarding his coming, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to come back. Ready? Ready for this? Now he's going to tell you why. He is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to repent. Now, not everyone is going to repent. The Bible says most people will end up damned. But there's a certain number of people that God wants to bring in. Until the last soul is brought in that he knows is coming in, he's not closing the end of the deal. Amen? But why am I saying this? Because the parentheses, the delay, solely exists from God's point of view for one reason. And this is not it. The delay in Christ's coming is not so that you can grow up and have a family and a white picket fence. The delay in Christ's coming is not so that you can advance in your career. Older people, I'm kind of old, but older than me people, the delay is not so that you can retire and go on a vacation to a fancy island. The delay of Christ is not so that you can sit in front of a big screen TV and entertain yourselves. The delay of Christ exists for one reason, because God wants more people to get saved. So if that's why he's waiting, if that's why he's keeping me here, then what do you think he wants me to be doing? Amen? Why you are still here is because God's trying to bring more people into the kingdom. You witness to the unsaved, but you also help the saved people around you grow so that they witness to more people. Amen? That's the reason. So Jesus says, if the wicked servant says to himself, if you even get in your head that he doesn't, he's not, I mean, really, do we have to be thinking about him coming back all the time? Well, if you get in your head that his coming is delayed, you don't really need to bother with it too much today. Then guess what the wicked servant begins to do? He begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. 
This part breaks my heart. Because when you're not looking for Jesus to come back and you're not about what he's about, instead of feeding people the word of God and helping them grow in God, you start beating up on them. You start gossiping about other people, other Christians. You start picking on other Christians. You start giving them a hard time. And at its worst, many Bible commentators seem to say that this means that you actually are angry and jealous that there are people who are living for the right reason and in your religiosity you begin to persecute and give a hard time to those you know are in the right way. And instead of feeding each other, we begin giving each other a difficult time. Boy, that happens a lot. Then he says you begin to eat and drink with drunkards. You, you just, you're not sober anymore. You're not watching anymore. You're involved in all the things you shouldn't be involved in. You're too weighed down by the cares of this life. So here's what Jesus said. Jesus said this. He said, the master of the house will come on a day when that person, that wicked servant, does not expect it. And at an hour, he does not know. Why is he not expecting it? Because he wasn't looking for it. So he was caught off guard. Now watch this. Now, this next part I want to be very careful with. I want to remind you that this is a parable, and so Jesus is using earthly things to demonstrate a spiritual principle. What he means by this, I'm going to leave to him himself, but I want to tell you one thing. From his description, I don't want to be walking around saying the coming of Jesus is delayed. Because he says the outcome for this person will be that Jesus, who is the master in the parable... The master is going to come home and cut him in pieces. This is not seeker-friendly Jesus. This is truth-telling Jesus. Now, in the Eastern, you know, back in the day, in the East, we're studying the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar would often say of his enemies, I'm going to cut you in pieces or tear you limb from limb. It was a tradition. The book of Hebrews says that many men and women of God were persecuted by being sawed in half. Now, am I saying that when Jesus comes back, he's going to saw people in half? No, but here's what I'm saying. He used the worst possible image, the worst possible torturous image to show what becomes of the wicked servant. They will be put, torn in pieces, cut in pieces, and put with who? The hypocrite. Oh, those were those people that Jesus said were smart enough to look at the cloud and know that it's going to rain, but they weren't wise enough to read their Bible and know that he could come back at any moment. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You also don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out the only time Jesus ever uses the term weeping and gnashing of teeth, he talks about what? hell so now i'm very convicted here because wow wickedness is defined as not expecting him to return not looking for him not staying awake knowing he could come back at any moment not feeding his people the word not focusing on what really matters that's a wicked servant and a wicked servant ends up torn limb from limb cut in pieces where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, whoa, I guess 
I want to be faithful and wise. But here's the thing you can't do. You can't be a faithful and wise servant by coming to church every Sunday and sitting in the pew. doesn't make you faithful and wise. You have to be giving Jesus and his word to everyone your life touches at the proper time, he said, in the right context and in the right way. One more thing before we close it out. The parable gets, in Luke's rendition, gets just a little bit worse. Because the Bible does uphold the doctrine of levels or degrees of punishment in hell and levels or degrees of reward in heaven in several places. This is one of them. Jesus then adds to this parable in Luke's version. He says, and that servant, this is really, I have, I have a hard time actually reading this. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and still did what deserves a beating will receive a light beating. Listen, if you are a wicked servant, if you are not saved by the blood of Jesus and his disciple, you're going to be damned, right? People who have not been exposed much to the gospel are still responsible for turning to God. Romans 1.20. They can look at creation. They can look at the palm of their own hand and begin to seek after God. And the Holy Spirit will aid in that. God is just. But what I want you to get from this is, I have often said, and I will say it again, God is my witness. One of the most dangerous places to be every week on a Sunday is sitting in the pew of a church and hearing the truth and not responding because of this. Because every single one of us who comes to this church or goes anywhere to get fed the word of God and hears the truth and does not properly respond, you will be punished so much more severely for what you knew and you didn't act on. Then Jesus added, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. Look, I could not take any more seriously my responsibility to declare the word of God. Because I got saved when I was about five and the Lord, I mean, I was preaching when I was seven and eight years old in my backyard to the trees. I mean... It's God's calling on my life. I've been studying this book since I was like five years old. And I know that that puts me in a very dangerous position. Because if you've been given much and if you know a lot and you attend a good Bible preaching church and you do not respond to God's Holy Spirit's prompting when you hear messages, I'll just let the Bible speak for itself. There'll be a greater punishment. So, in closing, I told you I called this message the delay diagnostic. And the question is why? Well, the wicked servant says my master is delayed. What I'm saying to you is this. I'm not up here trying to pound into your head, if you're a Christian, you better start looking for Jesus to come back. Because here's the scary part. You ready for this? If you truly are right with God, 
you will already be looking for him to come back. And so you saying in your heart, his coming may be delayed. I don't really have to be that serious. Is not, what that is, is that's a symptom. That's the diagnostic tool that the Holy Spirit will use to tell your own soul you're in trouble. The delay diagnostic. Your attitude toward the return of Jesus Christ and your state of readiness and your longing to feed the world and the brothers and sisters in Christ, this truth and this word, which has never been more needed than it is today, amen? Your status, if you even say to any degree in your heart, it's delayed, that's the symptom. The sickness is much deeper. The writer of Hebrews said, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who go to church every Sunday. But to save those who do devotions with their kids in the morning. He's coming back to save those who give to missions. What? He's coming back to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. I love him so much. It's what you want to say. I love him so much. I'm waiting. And in the parentheses, I'm doing what he wants done. Seeing people come into the kingdom. Last scripture to close with. Here's your blessed hope. Not your vacation, not your retirement, not your home redecorating process, not your career move up the ladder, not any of that. That's not your hope. Ready for this? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that same grace that saves you is the grace that trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we're what? Waiting for what? The blessed hope, our blessed hope, which is what? Defined as what? The appearing. Okay? Not, oh, he just lives by his spirit in my heart. That's not what this is saying. This is saying your blessed hope is not only that he dwells in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. But guess what else is the hope? That one day the Christ who dwells in you will what? Appear visibly before you. There's a day. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I will see. When he will appear in all of his glory on this earth. That, my friends, is what I'm waiting for. I love that he lives inside of me, but I can't wait till he brings his dwelling down to this earth and he is right in front of me. Amen? Amen. The delay diagnostic, it's a, it's a symptom. 